Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, this week, students were out of school, in fact, over 100,000 of them for something which we've never experienced before, it's certainly not on this scale. They were out of school because of PSPS, a new acronym on the education-slash-school landscape, Public Safety Power Shutoffs. Really, quite remarkable. It is, and I suppose it's the fear of the Diablo winds and the Santa Ana winds that PG&E, our utility, feared would knock down the lines and start more fires. Hopefully this won't be a permanent feature of the education landscape in California, but given that these aren't problems that are easily fixed, it could well be. Well, the winds of change didn't affect the Smarter Balance test scores, which were released this week. Bad pun, John, but we'll let you get away with it this one time. And interestingly, there were some bright spots. There were, in fact, scores of Latino students grew faster than white students and Asian students and closed the gap, particularly in English language arts. That means if this trend continues, there's a real prospect for narrowing and hopefully eventually closing the gap altogether. And given that Latino students are by far the largest ethnic group in the state, that's pretty significant. Yeah, over half the students. And so when they increase faster than average, that's a good sign. So any other bright spots? Yeah, we did an analysis and what it showed was that the districts that received the most funding under the local control funding formula for the number and percentage of low-income students and English learners, their scores increased faster than those districts that received the least money. Basically, it's saying low-income districts progressed faster than wealthy districts, which is also a good sign. Suggesting that some of the investments that the state has been making over the last five years are paying off? That's what it would suggest initially, for sure. We'll delve into the scores and their implications a little bit later, and we'll speak with Lisa Andrews. She's CEO of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation in San Jose, where she oversees a massive summer math program involving nearly three dozen districts. Well, first, let's talk about African-American students. You know, the achievement gap remains frustratingly large when it comes to these students. And a new report came out this week from UCLA called Beyond the Schoolhouse, And it provides some compelling insights into why the gap isn't narrowing. So we thought we'd talk with a co-author of the report, and we have on the phone Tyrone Howard, a professor of education at UCLA and the director of the Black Male Institute at UCLA. Professor, if you add up all the data, you know, what's the message that all these accumulation of adverse factors affecting black youth, what's the message from the report? I think the message is that despite a lot of our efforts, not only are things not getting better for black students, but in many instances, they're getting worse. These data tell us that we need to begin to think about some different approaches, some new alternatives to what we've been doing around the education of black students, because these are not only academic factors that we see are uh, causing concern, but many of these academic factors are caused by significant challenges outside of school. So just give us an idea. How are things getting worse? What we're seeing is that despite all the efforts we put in place, the gap between black students and their counterparts in some ways has gotten even wider. What we see is that black students are disproportionately overrepresented when it comes to placement in foster care. Black students are overrepresented when it comes to being homeless. Black students are overrepresented when it comes to being identified with disabilities. So when we look at a lot of the risk factors that we know uh, have a profound effect on our students, we see black students continue to grow in those numbers while other populations continue to remain stagnant. A lot of environmental factors, too, your report notes, asthma and lead in water and just exposure to pollutants in general. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really caught us by surprise, that we looked at issues tied to 
chronic absenteeism, for example, which again, African-American students had the highest rates in the county, but this chronic absenteeism is due to a lot of health factors. And we looked at where pollutants in the air and lead poisoning were most prevalent. They happened to be in areas where African-American students were in larger numbers, such as Inglewood School District, Compton School District, Long Beach School District. And then to a lesser extent, we even see this in the Antelope Valley, which is what I oftentimes refer to as the forgotten part of Los Angeles County, where there are a host of different structural disadvantages affecting students out there. We're talking with Tyrone Howard, a professor at UCLA. Statewide, the percentage of black students is declining. I'm wondering whether you think that the shrinking proportion of African-American students in our schools means that they're not getting sufficient attention, that there's a danger that they kind of get lost in the shuffle. I would certainly agree with that contention. Part of what our data found is that African-American students uh, were about 100 and almost close to 190,000 students in the county about a, about two decades ago, and now there's a little bit over 100,000. Part of what has happened with the significant surge in the Latinx population, of course, a lot of t- attention and focus, you know, understandably so, is placed on that population. But part of what we are saying is that we do think black students get oftentimes overlooked and underserved. And that's pretty dramatic that there's been such a huge decline in the number of African-American students. What accounts for that primarily? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a combination of factors. What we know is that there's been a almost a re-migration, if you will, of many black families out of California to parts of the United States that many originated from years ago in the South. Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi have seen larger numbers of African-American students or African-American families, I should say, that have re-migrated to the South. We also know the issue of affordability in Los Angeles County has caused a number of African-American families to move out east. And then we also see a slight decrease in the birth rates of African-Americans. So those three factors all contribute to this. You know, you're calling for a comprehensive approach in the report, bringing schools, community organizations, counties, state agencies together. There are a lot of recommendations, but what are your priorities? We've got to at least acknowledge that we've got a significant problem that seems to be getting worse. And we continue to state that we can't allow or expect schools to try to fix this alone. And I think we've dumped all of this primarily on schools. And when schools don't fix the, the disparities, we say, shame on you, schools, and we punish them in a host of ways. We're saying that if there's a priority, we've got to look at some things that we can control. I mean, issues tied to mental health that students might bring as a result of trauma, that's a huge factor that we can begin to put more social workers in classrooms, more counselors in schools, more therapists in our districts. Because if we can help students who are dealing with anxiety or depression uh, or a host of other traumas, we can at least begin to stem the tide to put students in healthy situations to learn. I gather that the L.A. Unified School Superintendent Austin Butner responded to your report, and he's pointing to a lot of things that LAUSD or L.A. Unified is doing as a $100 million investment to establish over two dozen wellness centers, a new program with Charter College of Education at Cal State L.A. to recruit and train more teachers of color. What's your general reaction to that? Is the school district responding? Does it need to do more? I would say yes and yes. I think they are responding, and I, we appreciate that Superintendent Butner acknowledges that they've got to do something different as it pertains to African-American students. But I think there is a need to do more because while these plans are really grand in nature and they sound amazing and on the surface, the devil's always in the details. The implementation is going to be critical. The assessment's going to be very important here because we've oftentimes had a host of programs that have sounded good on paper, but have oftentimes fallen short when it comes to the actual implementation 
and the really targeted focus on the students who need it the most. So we're kind of in a wait and see mode, but we're willing to partner with the district if they think we can be of assistance to them. But yes, the recognition that there's a challenge before us and the allocation of funding uh, helps and sounds like it's, it's a good start, but there's still a lot of heavy lifting to do. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Tyrone Howard, professor of education at UCLA. And the issues you raise, of course, affect African-American kids all over California. So uh, thanks for your work in highlighting these issues. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll talk about rethinking math instruction. John, we started the podcast talking about some of the bright spots in the Smarter Balanced Test Scores that came out. And uh, I'm not sure whether we emphasize this, but this was the fifth year that these tests have been administered. It does give us an opportunity to look at how far we've come over five years. So one area where things are not looking so great is in students' math performance. Yeah, about 40% of students now are proficient. The technical definition is they met their standards or exceeded standards on a smarter balanced test. Less than half are not yet proficient. Exactly. And that's the overall average. What's more disturbing, Lewis, is that third graders do quite well. About half of students are proficient in third grade, the first year they take it. But by the time you get into middle school, it begins to drop. And by the time you get to high school, it's much lower than 50%. Very concerning because math is so critical. You need math to graduate from high school. You need math to uh, get into college. You need math to transfer to college, to a four-year university, and then to graduate. So how students do beginning of the third grade is really important to their entire education careers. To get a perspective on math, we have on the line Lisa Andrew. Lisa is the CEO of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation and a former superintendent of the Hollister School District. The foundation runs a summer program, Elevate Math, for students in 3rd to 10th grades, reaching nearly 4,000 students in 32 districts involving 180 teachers. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Glad to be here. So where are we now after five years of taking the Smarter Balance test? How would you characterize the status? We know a lot more about how students think about math. We know a lot more about how teachers should be teaching math, and we know a lot more about the ways in which teachers need to be supported so that they can deliver math instruction in a way that facilitates deeper student learning. So if we know all that, it's not quite showing up in the Smarter Balance test results. Um, Is it implementation or, or what? It's implementation based on the expertise of the teacher. So if we know these things, we now need to make sure that we're providing the supports, the training, the coaching to teachers, with teachers, so that then they can deliver instruction in a way that's very, very different than the way that we've done it in the past. Isn't one of the first things that we have to deal with is the fact that not that many undergraduate students major in math or take math. So how do we get teachers who haven't really specialized in math, may even be afraid of teaching math, having to teach math? I mean, that's particularly the case in the elementary schools where a teacher has to teach everything. I was one of those teachers. I did not do well in math as a student myself. 
I didn't start to even understand math until I took a math methods course at San Jose State. There are teachers out there that don't like math as much as other subjects or prefer to teach other subjects or don't deeply understand. And it's because they haven't been given the opportunity to excel there, which means we need to provide them with the support, the training and the coaching so that they feel comfortable teaching math because they understand it themselves. If teachers are not coming out of teacher prep in the numbers that we need to teach quality math instruction, then it's the onus is on the system that they enter into in order to provide them with that support and training. We're talking with Lisa Andrew, who is CEO of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation and in the thick of math instruction and leading the way in terms of trying to improve math instruction in our schools. You guys at the Silicon Valley Education Foundation, you are working with teachers, but you obviously can't uh, take on the challenge for the whole state. I mean, how much support training, professional development are teachers getting in this area? You know, it depends on how a district prioritizes their funding. There's very limited funds, and so there's a lot of competing priorities. So you have to decide, you know, do we follow the research where we know math is the gatekeeper to student achievement and student success in college and career, and therefore double down and really make sure all of our teachers are able to deliver quality instruction in mathematics. That is why nonprofits like ours are really important to provide that extra layer of support to school districts. So the responsibility really is at the district level. Absolutely. I mean, the responsibility is for the district to provide to its system what it needs in order to support every student. Well, should the state be doing more to even out the uh, implementation? If it's, it really is varying from district to district, should the state be either providing guidance, funding, direction? What do you think? You're never going to get me to say no that the state shouldn't be giving us more funding for mathematics instruction. That's true. I think if it's a priority, show me your checkbook and I'll, I'll know what's important to you. I think if they want higher math scores and they want better student achievement in math, they need to invest in that. So here's what's perplexing with regard to the smarter balance results. In terms of English language arts, the rates of proficiency seem to increase as students go through their grades. But for math... It's not too bad in third grade, something like 50% of the kids test as having met their standards, which is proficiency, and then it drops in middle school and high school. How come? Because of what's required in mathematical thinking to progress along the continuum. In reading, you learn the vowel sounds, then you do blends, and then you put those blends into syllables, and it's very much more logical and methodical. Then in mathematics, these are concepts that work together in different ways. It's teaching it in a way where it's being applied, just like we teach sounds to be applied to reading. We need to teach decomposition and composition as applied to a real-world situation. Just have to ask you, I mean, can math be fun? Yes, and I would invite anyone to come and watch some of our summer math programs to see that. Also, with being a teacher myself of first grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, I had to make math fun at all different levels. And I think it's the attitude that's brought to it and the application. You know, students just want to like, why am I learning this? And it shouldn't be drill. It's like, to what end will I use this? 
absolutely you can show, hey, we're learning about measurements so that you can go out and measure this and go out and measure that. We're learning about spatial relationships so that you can design a house, design a recording studio, you know, design how roads intersect. I mean, it's, it's showing students how this math is going to be applied to their everyday life that makes it more interesting and relevant. So your organization did a report called Extended Time, No Longer Optional. What does that mean? Any student who is not at grade level, it's very, very difficult to catch up and then to go on with the same number of days. There's so much to cover the following year. If we truly want to narrow the achievement gap, close the opportunity gap, by offering summer program, break program, after school program. It's just not not an option anymore to this agrarian uh, calendar and time that we have that we call school. It's just not conducive for the type of learning that needs to occur now. Well, I noticed even from your own report, even in Silicon Valley, 54% of students graduate from high school not college ready in math. So it looks like you're going to have your work cut out for you for some time over at the foundation. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today, and we'll be checking back from time to time, see how it's progressing in the summer program and math in general. Thank you so much for having me. Before we go, I just wanted to note that October 13th is the deadline for Governor Newsom to sign all the bills or to veto them. We're recording this just a couple of days before the 13th, so we won't be able to get to the important legislation that might be enacted in the next few days, but we'll bring you a full report next week. Yeah, a couple of them that we're watching will be one for sure is whether or not you can give the SAT or ACT instead of what we've just been talking about, the Smarter Balanced exam in 11th grade. that has got a lot of people watching. And probably the most hotly debated law, whether students should start school later, particularly teenagers. In middle school and high school, exactly. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you like us, copy the link and send it to a friend. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 